Okay, keep your Bibles open because we just read two verses that are in the middle of chapter 8 and 9. We're going to look at the whole thing, like two chapters today. We're kind of bundling things together just like you're home in auto, uh, just because we're kind of getting towards the end here. And so uh, the writer of Ecclesiastes has been telling us all these different kinds of things to point us to the truth. And I hope you're not missing that. I hope you understand that he's not saying that there's no meaning in life. What he's saying is, hey, you need to find your meaning and purpose in the only place that really matters. Like, don't stop wasting your time and wasting your life by looking for meaning in these things that won't satisfy you, that won't give you what you're looking for. Make sure you find it only in God. And so all throughout Ecclesiastes, we see these common themes kind of keep coming back up. And these two verses that we read are kind of, in some ways, a summary of these two chapters because it's the same thing. He wants to keep driving this home so that we get it, and we need to be reminded of stuff all the time. And so he's like, hey, yes, meaning and purpose are out there as long as you look in the right places. But another thing that he seems to be saying is like, hey, you, you and I, we're not God. We're not in control, and we don't know everything, which is also a really, really helpful reminder because even though we don't, I don't think we say out loud, I'm God, right? We kind of live like it. We kind of act like it sometimes because we act like everything's about us. We act like we're the center of the universe, that we can know everything, have everything, be everything, do everything. We, we can have it all. And, and when it, we don't, it, it leads us to frustration and anger and bitterness and disappointment that sometimes derails us. And so he's like, you, you, you're not God. So he's pointing us to who God is, what, what God has done. That, that's the ultimate truth that we're going to get to. And he, he's also saying, hey, you're not in control. And those of us that, like everybody really, we want to be in control. We want to have the plan. We want to know what's coming up next, all these different kinds of things. He's like, no, you're not in control. And, and he says that and reminds us over and over because he wants to point us back to who is in control. And he says, hey, you, you can't even know everything. Like Scott was talking about a couple of weeks ago, our wisdom, even our wisdom has limitations. We can't know everything. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His ways are higher than our ways. And so even in our wisdom and knowledge and intellect and all that stuff, like we're going to have some limitations and we won't, we won't be able to know everything. And so in these two chapters, he's going to say that over and over again. You don't know. You can't know. We'll, we'll see that here in, a, here in a minute or two. Like he's going to remind us, you're not God. You're not in control. Stop trying to act like that. Instead, find your meaning and purpose in the one who is God, who is in control, who has all the knowledge, who knows what's next. And so he's, he's doing that, and I hope that you're tracking along, because this book can really, really help us. It can help us not waste time and waste our lives pursuing things that don't really matter, but it can also help us understand when the world throws us those curveballs, understand how we, re, how we should respond. And so this, this book voices some questions that we, we all have all the time. And sometimes we're, we're scared to ask them. And that's why Ecclesiastes, like some people stay away from it because, man, it's asking some really tough questions. But these are questions of our heart. And I, and I love that part of it. I'm going I'm to recommend this book to you, um, The Things of Earth by Joe Rigney. And uh, a couple in our church, the Greens, gave me this book like in year one of Crosspoint. And I, I loved it then. I came back to it a couple of weeks ago. And it's just really, really helpful. I'm going to talk more about this book here in, in just a little bit. But I want to give you this quote I found in the book this last week. Uh, it's Joe Rigney. It's his summary of Ecclesiastes in one paragraph. And I, I really, really loved it. He says, Ecclesiastes is an extended reflection on life under the sun. Life in God's confusing, broken, and frustrating world. Everything under the sun is an enigma, an unsearchable mystery. This world is broken and under God's curse, yet still filled with gifts and pleasures for men to enjoy. However, 
because of the certainty of death, all these pleasures are fleeting and temporary, and we don't know when they will be snatched from us or us from them. What's more, injustice abounds in this fallen world, but, but not always. And so we find ourselves vexed and confused by the incomprehensibility of the world and God's ways. This is kind of a good example. He's walking us through life. There's a lot of broken things in the world. There's a lot of confusing things in the world. There's a lot of things that that hurt and don't make sense. But in the middle of that, there's some things that we really enjoy and there's some pleasures, but they seem like they're here today, gone tomorrow. And so what's the point? Like what's what's the, where's the meaning in that? There's injustice everywhere, but not everywhere. Not like it's, it's just kind of this confusion as you read through this book. And what he's doing is he's reminding us that in the confusion you can find truth. In the confusion you can find hope. In the confusion you can actually find joy. And so in chapter 8 and chapter 9, he's going to give these principles that he's kind of been hinting at or saying. And he's just going to remind us one more time about the importance of these principles. He's going to come back to it again. I want, I want us to walk through that. I really, really think it will help us. And the first principle is this, that life is often unfair, so we should fear God. Life so many times, is unfair. Then This doesn't seem right. This isn't, this isn't the way it's supposed to be, right? We feel that. We know that. We see that. And he says, life is often unfair, so we should fear God. So we read these two verses. I want you to look back at verse 14 of chapter 8 again. There is a vanity that takes place on earth that there are righteous people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked, and there are wicked people to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I said that this also is vanity. You understand what he just said? He said, hey, sometimes bad things happen to good people. And we know that, and we feel that, and we don't like that. There's a tension that's always there. Like, hey, why do bad things happen to good people? And then he switches it and turns it upside down and says, you know what else? Good things happen to bad people. And then it's like, what in the world is going on? Good things can happen. And that's when you look out at the world and you see people doing the wrong thing and they're, it looks like they're getting away with it. It looks like things are going well for them. And you go, okay, yeah, but if somebody's wicked and evil, like, so it'll catch up with them. But what about the little bitty things that you see all the time and it makes you confused, right? Like, oh, this person cheated on that test, right? And they got 100. I didn't cheat. I chose not to cheat. And I got a 75. Like, where's the fairness in that? This doesn't fe- seem or feel fair. That somebody's compromising their integrity and their business dealings, and it seems like they're prospering. It seems like everything's going great for them. And I've, I've held true to the to the standards of God's word and my business isn't flourishing like theirs is and it just feels unfair it feels like this is broken feels like this isn't working he says life sometimes is often unfair and here's the solution that he points us to in that so we should fear God and and that's so helpful to me because when I see how unfair life is what I want to do the temptation for me is to just say well it doesn't matter then if, if it works out fine for the people that are doing the wrong thing and they seem to be flourishing, they seem to be successful, then what does it matter how I live? What does it matter what I do? What does it matter what I do with my Sunday? What does it matter how I do with my life, my business dealings, everything? What does it matter if I compromise in these little areas? And so I, I'm tempted to not fear God. And when we say fear God, we're like in so much awe and respect of him that we want to follow him. We want to obey him. That's where this whole book is going to this, like you'll not find meaning anywhere else, but you will find it when you fear God and keep his commandments. And so when I see in the world, this isn't working. 
People are doing the wrong thing and it seems like they're going, it's going really well for them. I'm tempted to stop following God. I'm tempted to stop obeying him. I'm tempted to stop living the way he wants me to live. And what he's telling us is like, hey, when everything doesn't make sense and when you think it feels really, really unfair, keep fearing God. Keep following God. And he does this in several ways in these two chapters. At the beginning of chapter 8, he gives this well, it's kind of a crazy hypothetical, just to be honest. And so you have to kind of stretch your imagination a little bit. But he talks about a king who's in power, like a political leader, and he's evil, and he's wicked, and he's doing things, whatever he wants, and you as a person have no ability to change that at all. I know, it's kind of crazy, it's far out there. We can't even put that in our context. But just imagine if we had political leaders that were doing the wrong thing, and they did whatever they want, and we couldn't change any of that. Can you even begin to imagine a scenario like that? Maybe. Just, just so you know, that comments for people on the, both sides of the plate there, like it, it works both ways. Like when you, when you have that situation where somebody in power, somebody's in control, and they do something, and you know you don't have any say in that at all, what do you do? It says keep fearing God. Keep fearing God. Don't, don't walk away from your fear of God. Don't, don't forget that God is in control. Look back at chapter 8 again, verse 12. Here's where he says, this really helps me. He says, though a sinner does evil a hundred times and prolongs his life, yet I know that it will be well with those who fear God because they fear before him. It will not go well, not be well with the wicked, neither will he prolong his days like a shadow because he does not fear before God. It's so real. You see somebody do the wrong thing, they do it a hundred times, and they just keep on living their life. Nothing's happened. No, no judgments happen. No consequences. They're just, it seems like everything's fine for them, even though we know they're doing the wrong thing, and we feel it, and we see it, we don't like it. And he says, oh, but it's not going to go well for them in the end. It'll go well for those who continue to fear God, who continue to follow him. In spite of what they see, in spite of what they feel, in spite of what it looks like is going on, you keep on following God. He says, in the end, judgment's coming. We sang it today. He's the king forevermore. And so I'm going to keep fearing him because I know he has all the authority. I know he has all the power. I know he has everything. I'm going to fear God no matter how it feels in the world, no matter what I see going on, no matter what it looks like, how unfair it seems. I'm going to keep fearing God. I'm going to keep doing that. And so what it kind of is leading us to here is like if you're going to fear him, you've got to trust him. And so the next principle, the next observation I think you can make here in these two chapters is that life is mostly uncertain, so we should trust God. Life is mostly uncertain. It's unpredictable. You you don't know what's going to happen next. And you're maybe not even supposed to know what's going to happen next. His ways are higher. His thoughts are higher. It's an unpredictable uncertain life that we live. We make plans and they fall apart all the time. We got, we got. oh, I, I think this is what's coming next and something comes in and derails that, shocks us, surprises us, takes us completely out of that arena. Like life is mostly uncertain. And he says in the middle of that uncertainty, what we should do in response is trust God. So that's the reality. That's the fact that he's trying to drive home. Life is uncertain. Life is unpredictable. I want you to see this. Turn over to chapter nine and look at verse 11. Chapter 9, verse 11, he says, Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them 
all. Do you get it? It's unpredictable. You can't, you can't figure it out. You can't know what's next. You're not, you're not supposed to. Like sometimes the fastest person doesn't win the race. Sometimes the strongest person doesn't win the battle. Sometimes the smartest person doesn't make the million. Like you, it's an unpredictable life that we're in. And when we make plans and we think this is where we're going next and those plans get derailed, the temptation is to be so mad and so frustrated, throw our hands up. What does this even matter? This is, this is all meaningless. This doesn't even matter. Like I'll just do whatever I want because I can't plan anything. My plans don't matter. And what he says is that, no, what, what we need to do is trust God. Because when it's my plans that derail, I get frustrated. But when somebody else's plans derail, I can sometimes be okay with that. I mean, that's why you love March Madness. Let's be honest. Some of you guys are not college basketball fans, and God help you for that. But like, even if you're not, you probably tune in a little bit during March because you know upsets are happening. Upsets are coming with March Madness. Like there's sometimes the team with the most talent does not win the game. And it's glorious and it's wonderful unless it's your team, right? But there's an unpredictability about life. It's so uncertain. We don't know what's going to happen next. And sometimes that's kind of hidden. It's kind of subtle. It's kind of like, I don't, I don't really think about it. I don't see it until it surprises me. And sometimes it's right in front of us and, it's, and we act like we're trying to ignore it. We're acting like, yeah, I know everything's uncertain, but I'm going to act like I know everything and I can figure it out. I'm in control and I got this. <laughs> Let me give you just a crazy example of that. Like the, the casino. We know, we know how unpredictable that is. We know how risky that is. That, but we'll walk into that thinking, yeah, but this time, I'm going to get it. This time, I'm going to turn it around. I mean, every time I drive by Windstar Casino up in Oklahoma, I'm amazed that they're building new buildings there. Because I'm like, how are they building new buildings there? How can they afford that when they're giving away all their money? <laughs> it doesn't make sense. Like, you, we start thinking something's predictable and certain. And life is mostly uncertain. It's mostly unpredictable. The race doesn't always go to the swift. The battle doesn't always go to the strong. And, and here's what he says in the middle of that. We, we need to trust God in the middle of that. We need, we need to go back to understanding that even though we don't know, we can trust him. Look at chapter 8 again. I told you, keep those Bibles open. Look at, look at verse 17 of chapter 8. And I, One verse, he's going to say it three times because he wants us all to get it. Verse 17 of chapter 8, then I saw all the work of God that man cannot find out the work that is done under the sun. However much man may toil in seeking, he will not find it out. Even though a wise man claims to know, he cannot find it out. Three times, so it drives it home. You don't know. I don't know. I, I can make my plans, but it's all in the hands of God. I don't know what's next. I don't know how this is going to turn out. I don't know the next minute, right? And so in the midst of that uncertainty, the only answer that makes sense is to trust God. I'm, I'm not in control of any of this. God's always in control of everything. My plans fall apart all the time. His plan is right on schedule. I don't know what's going to happen next. And he's all-knowing. 
He knows everything. He's, he, he, nothing ever surprises him. So in the midst of this uncertainty of life, what I can do is I can trust him. I can continually trust him. I can put my trust in him. I can keep on fearing and obeying and following him because I trust him because I know he does have a plan. This is Ecclesiastes, but guys, it's the whole Bible. Proverbs says, trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding because your own understanding has limitations, it has failures, it has weaknesses, you won't understand everything. And when you do, you don't lean on that, you don't bank on that, you go, but there's somebody I can't trust. There's somebody that does have a plan. There's somebody that is in control. He's working all things for his good, for the good of those who love him. Like, he's got a plan, so I'm not going to lean on my understanding, I'm going to trust him. And so he says, life's often unfair, we should fear God, follow him. Life's mostly uncertain, so we, we should trust God. And then he's going to bring up another theme that he's brought up before, and what he's going to say in chapter 9 is that death is coming for us all, so we should choose joy. Which is kind of a hard turn here. The death coming for everybody. Oh, so here's the response. Joy. Choose joy. Which, just so we're clear, joy is a choice. You don't get to choose your circumstances. I don't get to choose how my plans are going to take effect or fall apart. I don't get to choose what's going to happen to me, but I always get to choose how I respond to it, my attitude in the midst of it. I get to choose that. With God's grace and his help by the work of his spirit, I can choose joy no matter what the circumstance I'm going through. So he says, hey, let me remind you that death is coming for everybody. Death is the the certainty. If he says all of life, most of life is uncertain. It's like he says, but not everything. There's one thing you can count on. You're going to die. Wow, this is so happy. <laughs> no, that's the certainty for everybody. We're, we're all going to die. And one of the commentators I was looking at this week, he, he, he broke down chapter 9 and he says, here's three points for you. Death is certain, death is sad, and death is sudden. You're not going to see those points up on the screen because I wanted this to be a happy place today. (laughs) Death is certain. It's for everybody. Comes and gets us all. And it's sad. It's It's not like he's saying, now death is our best friend. No, it's an enemy. Jesus had to defeat that enemy. It's an enemy. It's sad. It's tragic. When we lose somebody, it hurts. And it's sudden. It gets you anytime. It gets you today. You don't know. We can't know. But he says... Lean into that truth and choose joy in it. Most of the time, we don't want to lean into that. We don't want to talk about it. We want to avoid that, right? I don't want to think about death. I don't want to talk about death. That's sad. No. He says, no, lean into it and let it inform your life. Scott preached this a couple weeks ago. Death is a teacher. So lean into the reality that every single one of us is going there and we don't even know when and let it teach you how to live. In In the words of the... One of our famous theologians, Tim McGraw. I went skydiving. Went Rocky Mountain climbing. I went 2.7 seconds on a bull named Fu Manchu. I loved deeper. I spoke sweeter. I gave forgiveness I've been denying. Sometimes I hope you get the chance to live like you're dying. It's a pretty good song. It's also pretty good theology. Like, live in light of that reality. I don't know. It's coming. And here's what he says. So choose joy. Make the most of every opportunity that you have. Every single day is a gift. 
<laughs> That's what he actually says in, the, in this chapter 9. He says in verse 7, after he's kind of explained that death is coming for us all, in verses 1 through 6 and verse 7, look at this. He says, go, eat your bread with joy, drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. All the days of your vain, short life that he has given you under the sun, because that is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun, whatever you your hand finds to do, do it with all of your might. He says, in light of the fact that death is coming, embrace every day. Make the most of every opportunity. That's the response of joy. It's like, okay, well, he gave me another day. I'm going to make the most of it. I'm going to choose joy in light of the fact that that's what's coming. And even, even in the part that we're not reading all of it in verse 1 through 6 of chapter 9 where he's talking about this idea of death, even there there's a hint of it. If you look at verse 4, and we'll just look at that one verse in that section. He says, but he who is joined with all the living has hope. And he says, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. I'm like, what? What What does that mean? And there are a lot of things in Ecclesiastes that make you kind of go, what does that mean? And so I went to the source of figuring that out. I thought this would help. I found a Charlie Brown comic. And it's Snoopy writing the theology of the dog. And Snoopy says, or he writes and he hands it to Charlie Brown. It says, as it says in the ninth chapter of Ecclesiastes, a living dog is better than a dead lion. And Charlie Brown reads it and says, what does that mean? And Snoopy says, I don't know, but I agree with it. <laughs> Let me see if I can help Snoopy out a little bit. He's saying, hey, if, you, if you're still alive today, make the most of it. If you're still alive today, Receive it as a gift, which is why I want to bring this, um, this other book back up. The Things of Earth, the, the subtitle is Treasuring God by Enjoying His Gifts. And it's so helpful because it tackles the two basic problems with this whole idea of what do we do with the stuff? What do we do with this life? If it's here today, gone tomorrow, what do we do with it? And the one problem that we all kind of are fully aware of is the idea over here that these things can quickly become an idol. And instead of a gift, it becomes our God and becomes something ultimate. We start to worship and treasure and value the things more than God. And so even the good things that God has given us can become bad things when we do that, right? Like, I, I need that. It's ultimate. I'm, my life won't make sense without it. So we begin to pursue and value and treasure the things more than we do God. And we're rejecting the giver. We're ignoring the giver because we want the gift. And that's a, that's a bad problem. But on the other side of this thing, there's another problem that he points out, and that is to say, well, you know what? All I need is God, and I don't need any of his gifts. I'll be fine without his gifts, and I'm going to just I'm gonna put on a sad face because I'm in the Lord's army, and I'm going to get through this life because it's pain, and it's sorrow, and it's meaningless, and I, I know that I'm called to suffer. And so we reject the gift because we're so scared that the gift will become an idol. And in, in this book, he's basically trying to help us find a balance there, help us find a biblical truth that can guide us in that. What he does is he, he gives us a, a, a comparative approach and an integrated approach. And I, I, I'm going to share a couple of quotes in this, from this book because I think it will really, really help us when we, when we look at what Ecclesiastes keeps saying about this. I mean, he keeps coming back to this conclusion. Well, enjoy your days. Seize the day. Make the most of it. Everything has that conclusion, it seems like. Here he says, hey, 
Go. Eat your bread with joy. Drink your wine with a merry heart. Love your wife. All these things. He's given us commands. And in the verse we read earlier, he's like, I recommend that you choose joy in light of all this. He keeps coming back to this. So what do we do with it? How do we find the middle? How do we find the biblical truth? And the, the comparative approach is basically that approach of, hey, I don't want anything to become an idol. I don't want anything to compete with God. So I'm always checking my motives and my heart. Is this thing that God has given me, this good thing, has it become an ultimate thing? Has it become a God thing or is it still a gift that he's given me? I don't want the, the gift to become a God. And so we have this comparison in our approach. Look at, the, look at this quote. The, that comparative approach is valuable. It must be done. We have to say, whom have I in heaven but you? On earth there's nothing I desire besides you. We have to say that. That's where we have to land. We don't need anything but God. Then, having done that, having established deep in our soul that God is supreme, we love him above all, then we recover and he gives them back to us and says, now enjoy them for my sake. That's the comparative approach helps us. Hey, has this thing become too much of an idol for me? My heart is always turning those out and I gotta, I gotta make sure that I don't let the thing become ultimate and I keep God as supreme. And anytime I find that, God's calling me back out of that idolatry. This will never, I will never give you what you think it's going to give you. Only God can. So it calls me back to that. So I'm comparing all the time. And then when I made that resolution, God is supreme. I worship him above all. Only him. Then I can receive the gifts in their proper place with joy. The Bible is very clear. Like, Set your mind on things above in heaven. Don't set your mind on things of earth. And Paul's like, everything that I had before Christ, I counted as trash or garbage. Like it's worthless. I, I only want Jesus. But Paul also says in 1 Timothy 4, verses 4 through 5, for everything created by God is good. And nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. For it's made holy by the word of God and prayer. So you see it? Like God alone, supreme. He gets all my devotion, all of my worship. And then I can enjoy what he's given me as a gift from him. I can, I can show honor to him and how I receive his gifts and I find pleasure in those gifts. Like that's a, that's a part of this thing. And so the comparative approach that guides us, but how we live our lives is more of an integrated approach. And Joe Rigney says it this way in this book, The Things of Earth. He says, it's through the gifts that we come to know him more fully. That's what we might call an integrated approach where we're enjoying everything in God and we're enjoying God in everything because everything is a revelation, a manifestation, expression, declaration of who he is and what he's like. The created world reveals. It makes invisible attributes visible. The heavens declare the glory of God. So we can enjoy God by enjoying his creation. We can love God by loving what he's done for us and what he's given to us. Even creation itself, even the world that he's made, we can enjoy it. It's all ascribing to the Lord the greatness due his name. It's all giving him credit. So when we don't make these things an idol and we receive them as a gift, what we get to do is we get to give God the credit for the good things that he's put in our life. And even the things that don't feel like good things, like the comfort he gives us in the midst of tragedy and hardship, that's a gift from God. And I can receive everything as a gift because of that. And so Paul kind of sums up some of this whole chapter of Ecclesiastes in 1 Timothy 6, 17, but when he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, 
Don't put your hope in riches. Don't make it ultimate. Don't make it your idol. It'll disappoint you. Put your hope in God. And he says this about God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So don't, don't make these things your idol. But everything God's given you, receive it as a gift. Make the most of those opportunities. Receive every day as a gift from God and enjoy it as an expression of your love for him. So my favorite dessert in the whole world is something called Texas sheet cake. And my wife, Tammy, right over here makes the best Texas sheet cake. And I know it's not a competition, but she makes the best one. And it's, it's incredible. I love chocolate. It's chocolate on chocolate on chocolate. It's like death by chocolate. It's, it's awesome. And it's a pretty big deal. Like she makes it from scratch and people don't hardly do that anymore. But she has a recipe and she makes it from scratch. And so it's a pretty big ordeal. So she doesn't make it all the time. And so it's reserved for special occasions. So she makes me a Texas sheet cake on my birthday every year. And then the other day that we make a Texas sheet cake and we celebrate is March 2nd, Texas Independence Day. And I'm not joking. So those are the two special occasions. We make that cake and it's, it's awesome. And some of you are looking at me like, I don't know what you're talking about. How can it be that good? And I'm just telling you, I'm sad for you right now. This is a dessert that transcends, transcends desserts. It's the kind of dessert that on the day after it's made, it can be fine for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Like, it's a substitute for those. It's the kind of dessert that when I know there's leftovers, I can hear it calling my name, no matter what part of the town I'm in. Like, oh, there's Texas sheet cake. I got to get home. It's amazing. I, I love it so much. And I, I guess in some way there's like some kind of temptation there to maybe start just loving the cake more than I love my wife. I know that sounds silly, but what I mean by that is like, I could just like, if she hasn't made a cake for me, then what, what good is this? I need the cake to be happy. I need the cake to, to remind myself that she loves me and I love her. Like I, I, could, I could start drifting over to this thing like the cake is what I'm really here for. I'm glad she's here, but I'm glad she's here because she makes me the cake. And that's a horrible place to be. But there's another side of this thing. Like two times a year we get Texas sheet cake. This week she made another one because on Monday, last Monday, we celebrated our 30th wedding anniversary. Thanks, thanks for clapping for her. Um, her. Her middle name should be Perseverance. It really should. So she, to celebrate 30 years, she made my favorite dessert. And it was, it was great. But you know what I could have done? I could have looked at that cake and looked at her and said, oh, honey, I don't need that cake. You're all I need. I love you more than chocolate. I don't need, I'm not even going to eat that cake because you're so much and so enough for me that I'm not going to touch the cake. Well, my kids would have been happy with that, right? But that would, that would have been rude. I didn't do that because that would have been rude. It would have been like thumbing your nose at the gift. Like she made the cake because she loves me and she wanted to express my love, her love for me. And when I am enjoying the cake, I'm kind of expressing my love for her. It, 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 it's a way of like inter, integrating these two things. Like I don't replace the, her with the cake, but I also enjoy the cake because it's an expression of her love for me. That, that's the way this is supposed to work. In fact, if I really understand this, and I'm 
thinking correctly a couple times I am, when she makes that cake, it's so great. Like, I want to vacuum something. I want to help more, right? Like, I want to serve her because she showed me this love. (laughs) And that's kind of what God's saying. Kind of what Ecclesiastes is saying. Like, love God supremely. But don't, don't reject his gifts. Like, don't treat them as idols. Don't treat them as ultimate. But don't, like, ignore them because God has given you good gifts because he's a good father and he loves to give good gifts to his children. And so receive what he's given you as a gift and make the most of it for his glory. When, when, when I talk about the cake, I'm talking about how great she is at making these cakes. I'm extolling her greatness. And when you receive God's gifts as the thing that he's given you that you didn't earn, you didn't gain it, it was a gift. It's not your God, it's not ultimate, it's just a gift. And when you point people to God, you're extolling his greatness and how you appreciate and re- receive and find pleasure in his gifts. And that's what he's calling us to do. And you, you know that the only way that we can do that is by understanding what Jesus did for us. Like the, the reason we know that God loves us is because he showed it to us. He demonstrated, he sent his son to die for us. And here's what happened. God treated Jesus unfairly. He treated Jesus like he lived your life and my life. He put the punishment of sin that we should have had to take, he put it on his son. He, he let Jesus pay the penalty for sin that you and I should have had to pay but we couldn't pay. And then in exchange, when we put our faith and trust in Jesus, he gives us his righteousness and he brings us into a right standing. He makes us a part of his family. He gives us a chance and the right to become children of God because of what Jesus did. And what God did in that moment was so unfair. You don't want it to be fair. I don't want it to be fair. I want to worship him in response to that. And I want to receive every single day as a gift that I can make much of him and bring glory to him because of what he's done for me, how much he loved me, and how he shows that to me in all of life. So let's, let's be the people that do that. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for Ecclesiastes and the truth that we're learning as we study it. And God, today I pray that you would help us as... We know that life is unfair. Help us to fear and follow you. And, and God, we know that life is really, really uncertain and unpredictable, and so help us to trust you even, even though we don't know what's next. And God, no matter what circumstance we're in, would you help us to choose joy because of who you are and what you've done for us and how clear that is when we see Jesus and the cross. And we're thankful for being able to see Ecclesiastes on this side of the cross and be confident of your love for us and the hope that we find in your son. And it's in his name that we pray, amen.